Uh, we're going to be reading this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. So uh, if you uh, read a paper Bible or if you have an app or whatever, you can do that. It's also going to be up here on the screen so you can read along with me. The author of this letter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, uh, when it was written, this was a time when Christians were under huge amounts of persecution in the church. This is persecution that wouldn't really be tolerated in North America today, but actually still exists in lots of regions of Africa, lots of regions of Asia, and in lots of places around the world. It was written in the decades following Jesus' crucifixion and during a time when Emperor Nero was really active in persecuting Christians. And uh, so this letter is being written during during that time of great duress. So let's read 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 1. So get, and I'm reading from the uh, NLT, New Living Translation. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow up into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you will have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building in his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Amen. When I dialogue with someone about my ministry, one of the most frequent questions I get asked is, how do I evangelize? People say, what do you share? How do you start conversations? How do you know what you're talking about? Why do you think you know what you're talking about? How do you deal with the stress of it? Where did you learn how to say these things? And these are all good questions. They're straightforward questions but they have complex answers. And the reason why is because when I'm having conversations, let's say I'm talking with a Catholic student about the difference between their faith and Christianity, or maybe I'm talking to someone who is struggling with their sexuality, and they're telling me that their parents kicked them out because they're gay. Or maybe I'm talking to my neighbor about abortion, and uh, they're asking what I think about it. These are great opportunities, and they're kind of almost obvious starting points for us to bring faith into the conversation. But that's actually not usually where I start the conversation about my faith and sharing Jesus. Because those experiences, those big conversations I just mentioned to you, they're actually relatively rare. But every day we face them at some, we're facing people at some point in their lives and on their journey. 
So I have a question for you for Slack. In your experience, what are the best ways to enter into dialogue about Christ with people? The cafe worker serving coffee, the person behind you in the grocery line, that guy at Home Depot who apparently knows everything and so much more than you, these are all chances for us to share our faith and to start our discussion. And turning those everyday interactions into a faith-filled conversation can be very difficult for those of us who don't regularly open doors and have these kind of conversations, open up the doors and walk through them. Throughout my ministry career, I've eventually formed a belief based on kind of an organic research and I guess a little bit of my own experience uh, that there are three reasons why people struggle with making an everyday conversation into a conversation about Jesus Christ. And I want to share those three, uh, I'm calling them the three obstacles. I want to share them with you today. I actually think that there might be some lies that are built into these obstacles. And then I want to talk about three ways that First Peter uh, helps us to address and other verses help us to address these obstacles. Just before I do, if I look back on Slack, somebody says it's a lot easier when they ask about it. It definitely is a lot easier when someone else brings up a conversation and starts it. Someone says, don't hide that you're not hiding that you're a Christian, letting them know you are safe. Yeah, uh, creating a safe space for dialogue is actually, like that's not just an evangelism thing, that is, that's almost a, a common sense thing. Um, I used to have these conversations with people uh, that believe, uh, um, like the conversation of young earth creation versus old earth creation. If you want to have a conversation like that with a Christian or a non-Christian, you have to be able to create a space where you can have dialogue and people feel safe talking about it. You can pick just about any topic, a hot topic or not, and that is, that is the case. That's true. Build a relationship with them first. This is how I came to Christ. Transformation happens through relationship, doesn't it? It doesn't happen during this transaction where you um, impose upon them something. It definitely happens within the context of, of, of uh, relationship, always. To better understand this conversation, I wanted to frame for you some research, and that's actually what uh, Rob asked me to speak about today, was the research and some statistics that are behind that give us a little bit of a story about evangelism. And I am aware, uh, uh, British economist Ronald Coase says that if you torture statistics long enough, they'll tell you anything. And what he means by that is that you can kind of manipulate statistics to say what you want to, and I'm aware of that, but I think it's good to share, uh, to share some pieces with you and so we can see some trends, and that gives us a starting point. So there's three slides that I've prepared for you here. And uh, I'm going to show them to you. Uh, I need to explain it a little bit. They're broken down generationally. So if you look at the column on the right, uh, this is representing baby boomers. And for the purpose of our conversation today, that would be from after the war, so 1946 roughly, uh, to 1965. Okay? And then we have Gen Xers in the middle here. I'm a Gen Xer. So that would be from 1965 till about 1985. Okay? And then millennials would be 85 to about 2000, roughly, for the purposes of what we're doing here. There's actually another generation emerging, and this is called Gen Z. Um, because a lot of Gen Z are, are too young to participate in these surveys, we don't have the data from them yet. Um, but we can see what we need to see here. So uh, these circles, uh, there's two colors in the circles, if you can see them. Uh, and it doesn't really matter the breakdown of the colors. Basically, these are people that either agree or strongly disagree with this statement. So the first statement 
Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. 95% of boomers, 97% of Gen Xers, 96% of millennials, almost across the board, almost everybody would agree that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. That's good. Second question. The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Again, we all agree on this. 97%, 97%, 94%. A lot of people agree that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Next slide, please. When someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. Boomers, 92% say I know how. Gen X, 90%. Millennials, 86%. Hmm, a little bit of a trend. We seem to be losing the knowledge about knowing how to respond as we go through the generations. Next question, I am gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Baby boomers are, you know, they're pretty conservative there. They're being humble. They're saying, uh, I don't think I'm very gifted. Gen Xers are saying 66% are saying, I am gifted at sharing my faith with others. 73% of millennials are saying, I am gifted. Next slide, please. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Baby boomers, 19%. Most of them don't agree with that. They say, no, it's not wrong for me to share my faith with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Gen Xers, a few more of them. And the millennials, 47% agree by saying it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. These are Christian US pra uh, cr practicing Christians in the United States. So Canadians, I know, tend to be, usually there's a few points different, but it's, it's a good starting point for us. Last question. If someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. 9% of boomers say, oh no, I don't feel judged when someone disagrees with me. 9% would agree that if someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. 22% of Gen Xers agree with that statement. 40% of millennials, if someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. What this is demonstrating to us, I believe, is that as we go through the generations, we see that there's trends that are emerging. And you know, I begin to wonder, are these trends cultural? Probably, there's a lot to do with that. Is it societal? Probably, yes. But I also wonder if maybe the enemy is starting to get involved here when he sees that there's actually a real strength in evangelizing and sharing with people. Is it possible that he's beginning to build up this doubt and this concern as we go through the generations? So I want to talk about three obstacles that I, that I believe we need to look at. Um, three obstacles, maybe I could call them the three lies, but I felt that that, that was a little bit too strong. So I wanted to go with three obstacles. Um, the first one is that, that very statement, I don't think it's right to evangelize. Sometimes this is applied in reference to people of other faiths, or sometimes we reference it in people who disagree with our faith, and, or sometimes it's just referenced to anybody, anywhere. It, this is addressed in scripture, and there's a few verses I wanted to share with you. The first is Matthew 28, 18. And this is a quick go-to for a lot of pastors that are talking about evangelism. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority and in heaven and on earth. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is called the Great Commission. It's a very, uh, very well-known verse. And it basically is saying that we have been appointed or authorized or assigned to do this work and go into the nations. This isn't something where we wait for people to come to us. The verse says, go into the nations, meet people where, where they're at and baptize them in the name of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.15 is the verse that Danielle just picked. We didn't know that we picked these same verses, by the way. Talk about the Holy Spirit working. 1 Peter 3.15 says, um, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. So the Great Commission tells us that evangelism is an appointment or an authorization or an assignment. Yes, we are told to do it. But we're also encouraged to be ready to do it. That this is something, uh, the language here is be ready. In other words, be excited, be, be prepared, know what you believe and why you believe it. So when people ask you, you can give a defense and you can talk about it. This is talking about the emotion behind, uh, rather than just the, the direction behind it, right? So yes, you've been appointed, but you're also being encouraged to be ready. But wait, there's more. Because 1 Peter 3.15, uh, sorry, 1, 1 Peter 2.9, this is one of the verses we just read, says this, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. People, we've been selected for this. We've been chosen by God to do this. Yes, we are appointed. Yes, we're encouraged. But we're chosen by God to do this. We're granted the role with all of the responsibilities and the rewards that come with royalty in this position. Our self-worth is not based on our accomplishments. It's what we can do through God. It's what we can do through Christ. But we have been chosen by him as his very own, and he calls us to represent us to others. Um, I saw on Instagram a while ago, it says, he doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And if he has selected you and appointed you and chosen you to do this, he will qualify you to do it too. I think personally that there's such a spiritual power in recognizing this that the enemy has begun to mount a great lie to try and discredit it. Don't fall for it. Evangelism is an honor and a privilege Yes, but it's also a calling, and we've been selected to do that. And if, if the enemy is trying to get us to believe that that's a lie, then this, I should not evangelize, actually becomes a spiritual issue. The second great obstacle I believe we have is that I'm, I believe I'm going to be rejected when this happens. And this is an emotional issue. You know what? People are terrified uh, about rejection, right? The fear of rejection is a very common thing. And I get that. Uh, I have a fear of rejection as well. I think it's one of these things, I, I don't know if we're born with it or some people have it more than others. And I get it. Um, but I do think it's another great lie that the enemy uses because he wants us to be afraid because this is how he can make sure that we don't share our faith with other people. Second Peter 2.7 says this. This is a, a resolution I found in scripture to this point. 2 Peter 2.7, we just read this as well. 
This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Now, this verse, if you're looking in your own Bibles, you'll notice that the second half of this verse will either have a footnote or it'll be um, all caps or it might be italicized or it might be a different color. And that is because the writer, Peter, when he wrote this, was actually quoting scripture. And I love it when this happens, when somebody's, you know, when an author is writing scripture and they quote earlier scripture. And in this case, he's quoting uh, Psalm 118, I believe. And he reminds us here that the stone which the builders rejected, Jesus Christ, he became the very cornerstone. So we're worried about um, the fear of rejection, and rightly so. But you know, Jesus understood rejection so much more than we do. So much more. He was tortured for this. He was rejected and he understands it. There's this logic book that we sell at the store. It's called The Thinking Toolbox. The authors are Hans and Nathaniel Bluedorn. And this book talks about the difference between a discussion, a disagreement, an argument, and a fight. Okay, so a discussion is where we agree on something. I like apples. And you say, oh, I like apples too. That's a discussion, and that's good. Then there's a disagreement. I like apples. And you say, oh, I like oranges. I don't like apples. I'm like, oh, okay. Now we have a disagreement. Then there's an argument, and that's where we bring logical pieces of information in to support what we believe, respectfully. I like apples because you don't have to peel them first. You say, well, I like oranges because they're sweeter, and I don't have to wash them before I eat them. So we're bringing logical pieces into the conversation to support what we believe, and it's a respectful conversation. However, society has had us believe that an argument is a bad thing. Arguments can actually be godly ways for us to interact with one another. But everyone tells us that if I argue with you and I disagree with you, therefore I must hate you. But the truth of the matter is that a discussion, a disagreement, and an argument can all be a godly and reasonable place to reside. A fight, on the other hand, is where you bring unreasonable pieces and illogical pieces into the conversation. Wow, every blonde person I know likes apples. I can't believe it. This is crazy. And then, you know, the response is, well, you know, your mama wears army boots. And like, <laughs> my mama has nothing to do with this, right? Color of your hair has nothing to do with it. Fights, that is destructive. That is illogical. But the world has us believe that if we are going to be in a respectful conversation and have an argument about something, see, even the word argument sounds, you know, it, bring, it wells up emotions in us, Right? But from a logic thinking perspective, an argument is actually a good thing. And so when somebody disagrees with you on something, don't see it as a fight right off the bat. They're trying to better understand. And evangelism has a lot of this because as soon as you hit on some topic that is near and dear to them, they're going to come out with a thousand reasons why they think that you're wrong with what you believe. And that's a healthy place to reside. If you want, you need to be able to exist peacefully we need to be able to peacefully coexist in this space with others where we can have um, disagreements and arguments and still be able to witness to them while disagreeing with each other at the same time. So another Slack question for you. Apart from the fear of rejection, what barriers prevent you from being able to dialogue peacefully with strangers about faith issues? Apart from the fear of rejection, what barriers prevent you from being able to dialogue peacefully with strangers 
about faith issues. I don't think Canadians have figured this issue of godly arguing out, to be honest, despite our international reputation for pacifism. So many people believe that if I disagree with you, I hate you, and overcoming this cultural paradigm is going to be an important first step in building the trust that needs to be um, relevant and existing in the faith community. See, if I'm so offended by what you believe that I can't stop quoting scripture verses while you're wrong, then I'm surely going to miss the opportunity to be trusted enough by you to be relevant in what I have to say about that. Now, having said all of this, the fear of rejection is a truly a deep-seated emotional issue. And I recognize that, I understand it. It's not as easy as realizing that it's okay to be in discussion with people about things you disagree with. It's deeper than that. And I think actually it's important for us to realize that if we have a deep-seated fear of rejection, that that is something we should be addressing for our own spiritual and emotional health outside of the evangelism conversation. Seek wise counsel. Find a pastor or maybe a counselor or maybe a mentor. Just don't go to the internet. Go, go for a relationship where you can talk with somebody about these things. Half of you are married to counselors. Book an appointment. There, there's places and people <laughs> that you can talk to about these things, so find someone to talk to about it. Bottom line, seek counseling to help address it. It's worth it. The third greatest obstacle is I don't know how to do it. And this is a technical issue that has an easy resolution because I sometimes wonder if the problem is that, you know, I hear someone say, I don't know how to share the gospel. And I wonder, after discussion with these people sometimes, is the, is the problem that I don't know how to share the gospel or is the problem that I don't know the gospel? If I want to logically navigate with someone from here to the foot of the cross, I have to know how to get there myself first. That means knowing some scripture. And memorizing verses is another hot topic. Now, I just, I want to stop here and remember, because Rob talked last week about um, quoting scripture and regurgitating scripture to people as the first method of evangelism. And I don't think, I agree with Rob, I do not think it's healthy to create a problem for someone, to meet them where they're at and say, you're a sinner, because they will reject that. They've got so many problems in their life, for you to add another one does not makes sense. It's true, we are all sinners, and we need to know that, but this is not the starting point. The starting point is to find the, the point of pain in what they're saying to you, and bring Jesus in as a resolution to that point of pain. That is the magic of evangelism right there. So, having said that, there actually can be a time when there's a great power in sharing scripture, and knowing what the scripture is. Um, a lot of people say, uh, that they, they're not able to memorize, and I'll tell you, if you're, having uh, if you're having struggles memorizing scripture, consider joining Awana. Because when you sit and you live and you listen to kids repeating the same verse 100 kids in a row, you memorize that verse. Let me tell you, you'll know it. Um, then, then the next thing, I, I can almost hear it resounding in my head. People say, well, they're young kids, they learn easier. That is true. But did you know, let me tell you something. <laughs> Little kids learn well, but adults do too, okay? And I'll prove it to you. There's booze in the blender, and soon it will render 
that perfect concoction that helps me hang on. Wasting away again in margarita. <laughs> Terrible song. Why did I memorize it? I can't believe I memorized it. Last year, I memorized the whole song. But like, it's, it's a brutal song. Uh, Rhinestone Cowboy, Glen Campbell, memorized it too. Just by playing it over and over again, you know, I'm like a rhinestone cow, right? Like, come on, what am I thinking? <laughs> Pastor Rob can recite huge portions of the movie Sharknado from memory. He just, <laughs> he just knows it. I'm never going to let that one die. I'm not talking about memorizing half the Bible. I'm talking about four verses four verses, and chances are you probably already know one of them, okay? So yes, it does start with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, okay? So none of us are as perfect as God is, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, the wages or the cost of that sin is death. We will be dead in our sin, okay? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16, the good news is that God gave his only son so that we can have that eternal life, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 10, 9, if you want to respond to that, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is, Lord, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Four verses. It's not that hard. And once you know how to logically navigate from where you stand to the foot of the cross, when people want to understand that, you're able to fill the pieces in for them and help them understand that. So, how does this all look? Oh, before I go there, I just uh, I want one more Slack question. What methods work best for you to memorize scripture? Because I know that there's some, some beautiful nuggets out there. My daughter, um, she has little sticky notes that she puts on her mirror, and I thought, oh, that's, that's so stereotypical. But actually, it really does work because you look in the mirror a lot, right? When you're brushing your teeth, you're looking in the mirror. I don't know why. You know, when you're, there's, in the mornings, you look in the mirror a lot to prepare yourself, and when it's there, you can read it. So that's what my daughter does. But do you have methods that help you with memorization? So I want to give you um, a case study, how this looks in real life, okay? So, uh, but as I give this case study, I just, uh, uh, a, a disclaimer at first, because uh, it has a little bit, like, built into this is, I was talking to a Catholic youth, okay? So I don't want this to turn into the difference between Catholicism and Christianity. This isn't about Protestantism versus Catholicism, but that was the topic that we were using to talk about. So I want to show you how a hotbed topic can turn into a conversation about faith, okay? Without it becoming something that is controversial. So this happened uh, at the shop where I work, and it was while we were eating lunch. So to demonstrate, I've got a sandwich, okay? So I'm talking to this kid, and uh, he says, uh, before I eat my sandwich, I'm like, and he starts talking, right? So he says, oh, you just prayed, and you have a Bible on your desk. Are you religious? I said, uh, oh, well, no. No, I'm not religious. Right? He says, oh, well, I'm a non-practicing Catholic. I'm like, oh, he just threw the door wide open there for conversation, right? He says, I said, oh, I'm a practicing Christian.
small bites, but now I'm two bites into my sandwich. He next says, I don't actually think there's much of a difference between Christians and Catholics. I don't think he's ever been to Northern Ireland because they'd tell him <laughs> a lot different there. But, And I say, well, actually, I think there is a bit of a difference. It's in the relationship between faith and deeds. See, Catholics believe sin is absolved through the sacrament of confession. So they confess to God through a representative of God called a priest because that's the practice that Jesus, during his ministry on earth, established through Peter. Then the person confessing the sin can be given tasks to do, like praying to a saint or maybe repeating a certain number of prayers or something similar like that, and their sin is absolved. And then I stop because I don't want to be preaching at him. I give him a chance to respond. And boy, does he respond. While I continue with my sandwich, he goes off and tells me all sorts of things about the Catholic Church and his experience in there. He sang in the choir. He told me that he used to fall asleep during the sermons. And he told me that he used to tear the, the, the sheets out of the pages out of his Bible because they were perfect for rolling joints in, smoking marijuana, just the right weight of paper, right? So he's telling me this stuff. I'm like, how do you respond? Sometimes I laugh, sometimes I don't. And then he says, but basically I'm a good person though. I do my best not to cause trouble and I do nice things for people. And he's satisfied with that. He's a nice guy. Then he goes on, because I still don't talk, and he tells me that his dad goes to the Catholic Church. Get this. He says, my dad goes to the Catholic Church every month and gets his sins cleared up because he feels guilty when he gets angry and punches me in the face. This isn't about domestic violence. This isn't about Catholics versus Christianity. If I got too tied up in that, I'd miss it. See, we all have pain, and he just trusted me enough to share it with me. You know, at first, I used to be worried when I had these conversations that people would, you know, make fun of me or judge me, like we looked at. But I'll tell you something. The way bigger problem is that people will tell you way too much information. And you need to have ways built into your life where you can get your daily bread to keep yourself fed because the clear and present danger won't be the fear of rejection, it'll be burnout when people start to share with you. But once you feel natural in these conversations, you can deal with both the rejection and the burnout. So I told this kid, you know, as a Christian, I believe something a little bit different. God's works are the inevitable result of true faith. Good works are the result of true faith, yes. But good works are not the basis of our standing before God. So you can be a really nice person and do lots of really good things and not have eternal salvation. I believe that we're all bad people by nature, that the cost of that is death, and regardless of how many good things I do or how many bad things I do, my sin can only be saved by God's grace when he gives us the gift of perfection through faith in him. And fortunately, God loves us so much that he gave his only son to pay that price. And if you want to respond to that, I can tell you how. And then I'm wait again, and I'm just quiet. And before I even finish my sandwich, I've been able to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. It's not a long, three-hour, knock-down, drag-out conversation. It's simple, it's natural, and it's normal. But it's, if it starts by telling them about a pain that they don't actually have in their life, you're not going to go very far. 
So what's next is actually the hardest part. And I'm going to say this, um, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you this. The hardest part is that at this point, when you share the gospel of Christ, one of three things is going to happen. They'll have more questions for you. They'll reject what you say. Or you're going to be discipling with that person for a long time. And let me tell you, rejection, you better hope that they reject you the first time around you do this because that's the easier of the two. Discipleship, where you walk with somebody for a long time, that's hard, really hard. It takes a lot of inner strength. It takes a lot of prayer. You will grow on your own, and it's so rewarding because it involves a relationship. And relationship is where transformation happens. But it's hard because as many of us know, how we help someone grow can be like inwardly difficult, and my family will attest to that, that there's times when I come home and I can't talk about what happened during the day and I'm grouchy and it's really hard on me. But it's so worthwhile. Conversation is so worthwhile. Discipleship is hard, but the enemy has us believing that the greater hardship is rejection. It's not. So in closing, I just want to wrap with this. The statistics that we looked at, they show a change in what people think evangelism is. Rob established last week with us that the methods we use must change because our world has changed. And if we want to be relevant, we have to pay attention to that. So in the next weeks ahead, we're going to be um, hearing from others and from us about what the gospel actually is, how it looks to share it with people, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and even how to cope when things don't go the way that they're supposed to go. So my prayer for this church in all of this is that we will experience this together and that we'll experience the joy of being, just like the Bible verse said, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people chosen for God's own possession. Thanks.